welcome to MedTalk, a medical revision podcast designed for medical students to help with your studies and beyond. My name is Max. I'm a second year medical student at UWA. And today we have a very special guest. Uh, he's an emergency medicine specialist consultant from Bunbury Regional General Hospital with experience in both the Australian and Canadian medical systems. He's been working as a doctor for over 20 years and has been my dad for the last 22. His name is Dr. Humatenko. So thank you for joining us, Dr. Matenko. I was wondering where you're going to get yeah. to the part where I'm your dad. Like, yeah, I just, yeah, I thought, yeah. you know, the, why, why wouldn't that come first in the, <laughs> the whole little blurb there? So today's topic is an approach to acutely ill patient with a focus on the traumatic patient. So to talk about that emergency approach and that's the, that kind of approach that we do use for all patients in the emergency department. First, you need to know your general approach to patients, whether it's in an office-based setting or clinic setting or whatever it is. And so that approach, how do you, so if you're going to assess a patient, what it is, how, how do you do that? What do you do? Well, you take the uh, comprehensive history, I'm guessing. Yeah. And then? And then full physical exam or exam yep. based on the systems that you think need to be examined. Or Sure, or a targeted exam, and then you go through whatever investigations you think you need, then you come up with your impression of what's going on and your plan for how you're going to uh, manage that patient. Yep. So, right, so your assessment is that history and physical. And so as you go up to a patient, any patient, you're going to start getting that history. What are all the elements on that history again? So to start off, we've got the introduction and consent, and we go through the presenting complaint and the history of the presenting complaint, followed by the current general health past medical history with the allergies as well, the family history, immunization and screening, and then finally the social history. And at the very end, if you have time, you should go through the systems review as well. Okay, so there's your full history. And then um, tell me, how would you do a physical exam? Let's say you're gonna do a complete physical exam. Um, well, for our second year cohort, we haven't done full physical exams. We've sort of done exams focused on one system at a time. Okay. Um, so look, I'll just say in, uh, in the emergency department, most uh, physical exams um, follow a pretty clear and consistent format. So that format is um, on exam, this patient looks well or looks unwell or whatever it is. Um, then you say what their vital signs are. And when you say what their vital signs are, you can say those vital signs are normal or the vital signs are abnormal, except their blood pressure is high. It's 150 on 90 or whatever. Um, but those vital signs, you want to include the heart rate, the blood pressure, temperature, respiratory rate, and the oxygen saturations. So let's say you go up to a patient who's in the emergency department. And what's that first thing that you said you're going to do on history? Uh, introduction and consent. Yeah, that's interesting because I don't know that consent to take a history is really that critical. And I'll say that because if a patient presents to you and they, they are presented because they want your medical assessment, management, and opinion. So I think an introduction is absolutely critical. I, and you go up to that patient and say, hi, Mr. Jones, I'm Dr. Matenko. Tell me what happened. Because in the emergency department, they're there because something happened. And maybe it's, you know, my doctor's office is closed and I need a prescription. But oftentimes, it's a fall from a roof or it's whatever it's going to be. As you get to your introduction and consent, the patient that you're going to evaluate is brought through the door on a stretcher. You're working in an emergency department. It's, you know, you picked up an extra shift as a, as a keen medical student and it's two in the morning and uh, the other doctors aren't really around. 
and but for whatever reason somebody has um been climbing around on the roof and they've fallen off the roof and two of their friends sort of bring them in with them and um they're hauling the patient into the resuscitation bay and now the issue is is that full history and physical examination appropriate for that patient well that's a tricky one i think it probably depends on the level of consciousness of the patient how aware they are of what's going on and what could be going on yeah that's exactly and right so how so these patients whether whatever so let's say this same guy um you know he looks like he's um roughly 20 years old and your approach as you walk up to him is that first observation what does he look like from the end of the bed like does he have an arm that's bent out of shape does he have um, his eyes open or his eyes looking at you or, or his, is his face pale? Is he sweaty? All of those things you sort of take in in that first, you know, half of a second as you, as you go up to that patient. As you do that, then what you're immediately assessing is you're doing a primary trauma survey and you do it naturally, but you have to remember to do it. What I mean is if there's a patient on a stretcher and I say, hey, what happened? And it goes, oh, it hurts. You know several things just from that. You know that he's awake, so he can understand your question. He's trying to respond to your question. He can breathe well enough that he can get oxygen into his brain, and he can um, actually vocalize some sort of response. And you know that he's got sufficient blood pressure so that he's got blood flow and enough blood pressure going to his brain that he can perfuse it and, and stay conscious. As soon as a patient is unable to respond, or they don't respond, or they refuse to respond, then you can start to assess this primary survey. The primary survey is deliberately put into a familiar format, so it goes A, B, C, D, E. And right. A is for airway. B is for breathing. C is for circulation. D is for disability. And that one, sometimes it's for um, dextrose and sometimes it's for other things. And then E is for exposure, right? So it's airway, breathing, circulation, disability, and exposure. That patient that we just mentioned, so if he can sort of grunt and groan and give a half a response, you know his airway, breathing, and circulation, and even his disability, which is a measure of level of consciousness, are sufficient to continue. Now, right. the, other, the one thing to mention about the trauma primary survey is that what happens with each one of these things, you're going to evaluate airway, evaluate breathing, circulation, disability, and exposure. And as you do that, you're evaluating them. And as soon as you identify a problem with any of those things, you stop the primary survey, you manage that problem, and then you move to the next. Once you manage that problem, you go back to airway again. So there are some patients where their airway is the primary problem and you spend an hour working on their airway and you don't really get to the point of exposing their entire body because you're just too busy trying to keep them alive. Right. Um, so would you say that A, B, C, D, E goes from level of most important to least important in yep, general? That's, yep. And that's the way it is for uh, traumatic emergencies, for medical emergencies, for any emer pediatric emergencies. It, uh, they all follow this A, B, C, D, E format. The one caveat to that is that um, your assessment of the airway in a traumatic patient is that you do that while maintaining C-spine precautions. And the reason you do that is somebody who's had a fall off a roof, for example, could have broken their neck. And so whatever you can try and do to manipulate their airway is probably okay. 
let's now take this 20-year-old patient who's now unconscious and you move him onto a stretcher and to maintain C-spine precautions, that just means you hold his head and his neck stable and in line with the rest of his body. And we won't say any more about that. And what you do with the airway is to evaluate it, you look, listen, and feel for any problems with the airway. And what does that mean? Well, that means you look at the patient and you see, are they obviously struggling with their airway in some way? Um, you listen for strange noises, which are typically gonna be strider. And strider is a funny noise when you breathe in, it goes <gasps> <clears throat> or um, it can be like a snoring sound, like a <sighs> and you'll see that when somebody's either um, heavily intoxicated, um, heavily brain injured, or some other thing that's preventing their brain from maintaining their airway. So those, you look, you listen for those noises, and then you can feel, and the idea there is then you can uh, open their mouth and see, oh, is their tongue blocking the airway? And you move the tongue out of the way. And sometimes then, then you hear them breathing normally again, and that might've saved their life. So you go first from the airway, then you go to breathing. And breathing, you um, do your typical breathing assessment, which is inspection, percussion, palpation, auscultation. But what you're looking for are immediate life-threatening problems that could have been caused by this fall that um, need to be managed right now. There are other things you identify in that breathing phase, but if you get through that, then you go to circulation and um, you see whether there's any problems with circulation. In circulation, you wanna see how good is the blood pressure and the numbers to remember are a carotid pulse, means you've got a systolic pressure of, of somewhere around 60. A femoral pulse is around 70 and a radial pulse is generally around 80. These are, this is for young, healthy um, people, but it's young, healthy men who are uh, by far and away the most affected by uh, traumatic injuries. Um, part of circulation is you, I, you wanna identify and control any sources of bleeding. So someone, there's several closed compartments where bleeding can cause uh, immediate life-threatening problems. So if you think about that, there's, so there's external bleeding, right? If you're bleeding because your arm's been cut off or your leg's been cut off, well, that's actually not that difficult. You have to put a tourniquet around that and, and close it shut. But that's also very obvious. People are pumping blood out onto the floor in front of you. So can you imagine the closed compartments in the body where you can collect blood? Because there's several of them. Um, well, I would guess like chest and mediastinum. Yep. So Maybe. chest is one of them. Yep. Yeah. Uh, abdomen. There's lots yep. of space in the abdomen. Yeah. Maybe in the head and neck. Yep. Yeah. So, so that's um, a slightly different thing. I mean, if you have enough, so you don't actually lose a huge amount of blood volume if you bleed into your head, but it compresses your brain and that kills you. So that's yep. a, that's a, also a life threatening problem. Massive. Compresses the brain. Thing. Yeah. And so it, if you divide the abdomen, the abdomen and the pelvis as two slightly separate okay, areas, yes. the other but place anyway. that you can collect blood into is if you have a, a broken pelvis. So the pelvis has a lot of blood supply and a broken pelvis means you can bleed into, so that's internally again, um, but it's kind of into all the, the muscle, not into the peritoneal space, but it's, it's in and around the pelvis. And then you can also lose, if you have a femoral fracture, so your femur breaks, 
that you can break the big blood vessels, the femoral artery and, and uh, vein, and then you can just have enormous amounts of bleeding into that, into your thigh, and that can conceal uh, huge amounts of blood. Right. So that's circulation. And then next is disability. And look, I would suggest it's probably worthwhile to memorize the Glasgow Coma School. I think as a doctor, it's probably worthwhile. And I'll get to that. But really what you need to know is uh, where somebody scores on an AVPU scale. So AVPU, have you heard of that? I haven't heard of that one, no. So that's alert. Either somebody's alert or they're verbally responding or they're painful responsive so you you know you give them a painful stimulus and they respond or they're unresponsive so that's quite easy to remember no. um, and it's also pretty re reproducible okay and the glasgow coma score goes from three and anything is a three a rock is a three a dead person's a three 15 is the highest you can score and that's for somebody whose uh, eyes are open as you assess them who is uh moving sp their limbs spontaneously and who um, is alert and interactive in terms of their verbal response. Right. So you assess three separate categories, which is their eye opening, their uh, verbal response, and their motor response. And I won't go through all of it because um, I would just leave that for another time. Once you've done, once you've seen then how well somebody's doing with their airway, breathing, circulation, disability, the reason exposure is the last one on the list is because most times when you're evaluating C, in your trauma survey, you evaluate for bleeding in the chest and the abdomen and the pelvis. Usually that's it. You could evaluate for uh, pelvic fractures or uh, femur fractures that are causing hemodynamic instability, which is to say in somebody who's losing blood, they get elevated heart rate and lowered blood pressure so that they get hemodynamically unstable because um, they're losing blood. And as, as long as they keep losing blood, they're going to get higher and higher heart rate, lower and lower blood pressure until they die. Right. Um, and just to clarify, is that what hemodynamic instability is? Just lowered blood pressure and higher pulse? When people use that term, that's the most common way that they use it. Okay. Um, hemodynamic instability generally refers to somebody whose blood pressure is low. You think it's because of an injury and you're not entirely sure whether that's true or not. Okay. People don't, well, no, they can use, and that, that also applies to uh, cardiac emergencies. So yeah. somebody who's got a bad heart attack and their heart's barely pumping, they can do the same. You still call them hemodynamically unstable. Okay. So once you get through their uh, disability, then you get to exposure. And that's the, the time when you completely take this patient's clothing off. And that's why we have trauma shears is so that you get them off quickly. And you can, uh, you have to see the whole patient from top to toe um, because just because someone's been stabbed in the front doesn't mean they haven't also been stabbed in the back. And those injuries can also be severe and life-threatening and you need to find out about them before you move on to anything else. Now, somebody who remains unconscious and with abnormal vital signs by the time you've done your primary survey, you ideally will have an idea why that's happening and you're trying to do something to fix that. For example, say somebody who was stabbed and they had a lot, a lot of blood loss at the, at the scene of whatever happened to them. If you started an intravenous line and you're giving them blood, well, that hopefully will make them better to the point where they might start to wake up. Right.
the general thing to remember is that when you do a history and physical on somebody, as soon as you go up to them and say, hi, I'm Dr. Mantenko, what, what happened? And as soon as they respond, you should always think, okay, I've completed a primary survey. I know that their airway, breathing, circulation, and disability are all acceptable because they're awake and talking to me. Yeah. And, and that can remind you what each one of those things means and prepares you for the time when you're involved with these real uh, life-threatening emergencies for how you can manage those. Um, so just to summarize then, so you start from airway, breathing, circulation, disability, exposure. A question that I have is, where would CPR fit into that? Right. CPR is usually not relevant to traumatic patients. But let's just say we've got uh, some type of emergency where CPR is going to be necessary. So again, if you go back to that, you say, okay, this is no longer a, a, a traumatic patient. This is a patient who's just found down, right? They're, they've found down, they're unresponsive um, on the floor of your emergency department. Somebody picks them up, puts them on a stretcher and you go to that and you say, hey, hey, what's, what's wrong? And they don't respond. So there they are, you assess their airway, they're not breathing. So you can't assess for those extra noises, look, listen and feel you can debate whether you should maybe stick a finger in and try and unobstruct their airway. Maybe that's the problem. Um, but then you assess their breathing um, and see, are they breathing? And you assess their circulation, you feel for a pulse. And if you carefully assess for breathing and circulation for any respiratory effort, um, any pulse for 10 seconds, and they don't have either one of those things, then you start CPR. Right. So that's where CPR fits. Okay. So, that's why in that scenario, that airway breathing circulation assessment takes, that's 10 seconds. That's 10 seconds where you're evaluating for a pulse and respirate and, uh, and breathing. And if they don't have either one of those things, then you start CPR. Every once in a while, you're starting CPR on somebody who then wakes up and says, hey, hey, what are you doing? But it's far better to do that than not to do CPR on somebody who needs it. Right. I think that's, that's an important point to make as well. Um, good CPR is more effective at saving lives than all the drugs or defibrillation that there is. Well, maybe not defibrillation, but all the drugs <laughs> that are available for sure. But even in that sort of scenario, um, you would go through the A, B, C, D, E. So there's, so A, B, C, D, E would be able to be applied to basically any critically ill patient. Yep. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, in the scenario of somebody who's may or may not be having a heart attack and you're doing CPR on them, well, you've gone through A, B, C, and then it, usually what happens is then you go back, once you started CPR, somebody gets involved and they put either a laryngeal mask airway or an endotracheal tube, so they're, they've got a tube maintaining their airway, and then somebody's breathing for them, someone else is doing chest compressions, so they're maintaining A and B and C. Anyone who lets you do all those things, by definition, their disability score is going to be unresponsive. And we always have to remember as you're doing CPR, every few minutes you stop to sort of reassess where things are at. And you have to make sure at that point that you get the patient completely exposed and search for any information as to why this might've happened. That's your exposure. Okay. So there, so there are some scenarios where you might have all of them sort of going on at the same time and have different members of the team working on different areas. Yep. 
Um, and any of these life and death emergencies, there's always going to be, or there should always be, someone who's the team leader who's sort of verbalizing out loud, here's what we're doing, here's what's going on. And they might be directing people to manage the circulation, manage the breathing or whatever else, but they're trying to do it sequentially and in order. They might be getting done at the same time, but the highest priority is the airway. And so that does get done first. But while somebody's doing something with the airway, then someone else can do something else about breathing. Once somebody started to do something about their breathing, someone else can do something about their circulation. So yes, they might all be happening at once, but the starting order is always ABC. Right. Okay. And I guess that sort of fits into basic first aid as well, where it's like yeah. the first two are the, still the same. So airway breathing and then start to CPR. Yeah. So people talk, the last thing to mention is probably this. So a primary survey is that ABCDE assessment. And then it involves management because there's several other things that you can identify that you manage immediately. Um, and then you go back and you start your primary survey again. And there are patients where you never get past a primary survey and you're just doing stuff for an, an hour or two hours, just managing uh, critical problems. Once you've done that, however, then you go back to do a secondary survey and a secondary survey is a complete history and physical exam. One thing that you will find as a medical student is you'll go and um, take a history from someone and you'll ask all the right questions and then you go back and you'll present that to whoever the senior person is that you're going to present that case to. And then that senior person will go back and they'll ask like five questions, which will be the same questions, you know, five of the hundred questions that you ask them and they will give different answers. Over time, I've thought about this. I think the reason people do that is because you go and you go through these questions. But when you say, oh, you know, do you have any medical problems? They say, no, 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 I'm fine. And then when they go back, when you leave them and you go and present it to your senior, then the patient sits there and thinks, do I have any medical problems? And they didn't really think about that when you were talking to them. And then when yeah. they come back and the senior has to go, oh, yeah, yeah. So I've had kidney stones before. And then the oh, senior's yeah. like, okay, well, this pain you've got is your kidney stones. <laughs> oh, right. Oh, it must have come back. Oh, doctor, you're so smart. And then the medical student always feels like, you idiot, why didn't you tell me that before? But that's, I think that's why that happens. Yeah. So it's always worth repeating a history. It is always worth repeating a history. All right. Is there anything else you'd like to mention about that case? The 20-year-old the that you were talking With about With the fall from the roof? Yeah. So, look, we didn't really talk about the case because really we talked about what a primary survey is and, and how that yeah. works. I mean, look, we could say that um, this patient who uh, was brought in by his buddies was doing some parkour when he was high on methamphetamines <laughs> and um, he fell, he's broken some ribs, he's got a large pneumothorax that you put a chest tube into. Once he's got that pneumothorax, he gets admitted to the trauma unit overnight. The next morning he ends up getting, he gets a CT scan that night, needs an operation, he stays in hospital, he eventually comes back to thank you so much for all the care you delivered and he's never going to use methamphetamines again. There, is that, is that helpful? Some closure for the case. There you go. Even Everybody wants that closure. That's all right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a completely 100% true story in my imagination. Perfect. That's all go. we need. At least uh, the story has a happy ending. Yeah, do you see? Yeah. And you were the hero. All right. Well, um, I think we can probably wrap it up there. So is there anything that you'd like to add just to wrap up this primary survey talk? The, the key learning point that I think it's, it's helpful to come away with is that this idea of a primary survey is helpful for all patients and that it goes before the history and physical in patients where you don't have time to do that full history and physical. The key elements of that primary survey are always the airway, breathing, circulation, disability, and exposure. And if you remember that, 
then that'll help you a lot as you move forward. All right. Well, thank you for your time, Dad. I think that was very helpful in just breaking down the primary survey. Sort of like well, of course a, it was helpful. You have to say that. I'm your dad. <laughs> it seems sort of like a, like a step zero before the history and the examination. Which is, yeah, that's a good way to think of it. So look, I'm, yeah, I'm happy to do this again. And uh, all of your dear listeners, uh, hopefully we'll see you down in the Bunbury Emergency Department at one stage or another. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can find this and all other episodes as well as the transcripts on our website, www.medtalkpod.com. You can also find us on Facebook, www.facebook.com forward slash medtalkpod to stay updated with all new episodes and learning resources. Also, feel free to send us episode ideas or feedback either through our website or email medtalkpod at outlook.com.